Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome back to the Better World Leaders podcast. Today's conversation is just downright awesome, and I'm saying that very cheekily because our guest today is actually standing next to me as I say this in the introduction. Um, today's conversation is with Mickey Kavari, um, a local uh, to the place where I live, where I stand today, which is the Shoalhaven region of New South Wales in Australia. Uh, Mickey's got just a fantastic amount of knowledge, a really big heart and a really loving approach to the most transformative, most necessary um, and arguably most complicated transformational change work that there is, which is around more inclusive practices in the most comprehensive way um, to change systems for the be- the world betterment of First Nations peoples. Um, Mickey is going to lead us in an acknowledgement of country now, and then we're going to go and jump straight into the conversation. Thanks, Tim. That was a very nice introduction. <laughs> um, I'd just like to acknowledge the lands that we're currently meeting on, um, and we know here that it has been traditionally the lands of the Darawal and Yuan nations um, and particularly around here, the lands of the Wadi Wadi. And so we really want to pay respects to the elders past and present um, coming from those communities. Um, And so, yeah, I'll throw back to you. Awesome. Thanks, man. Mickey Kivari, welcome to the Better World Leaders podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. And when we say here, I'm actually going to somewhat rudely explain where we are right now. I normally ask people, like, where are you in the world right now? Yep. But since we are in a place together, it is my great honor to welcome you to my home, to what I could refer to as the Shoalhaven studio, but it is, <laughs> it is my home. And I'm very fortunate that I have such a wonderful and wise individual just a mountain range away. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, thank you. It's so good to be here in Canberra, so close to me in Kangaroo Valley, uh, which is, you know, obviously on the land of Wadi Wadi people and other First Nations peoples who lived here since time immemorial. Absolutely. And for those of you who are disinclined to Google Canberra and find out exactly where we are, this is sort of loosely southern New South Wales kind of 150 k's is it more or less from sydney yeah Um, about two hours south by car yeah two hours drive south of sydney so i get the rare privilege of um not only holding a space but being in place with the person that i'm talking to today so there we go first question mickey where would you like to take us if i invited you to share your journey from wherever you want to begin the story to be with uh, be with me here today, be with us, the audience here today? It's a tough and hard question because, you know, 
I guess people can start in lots of different places, whether it's from birth or from the beginning of their career. But actually, really, it starts even a long way back before that in terms of uh, connection to family and ancestry and all that, which I think plays a big role in who we are and what we do day to day. And so my family comes from Majorosag or Hungary, which is uh, in Eastern Europe. And my family immigrated to uh, Australia in the late 60s and 70s. They were uh, kind of fleeing economic hardship and political um, oppression of various forms. And, uh, yeah, so I was born here along with my sister and grew up in a kind of middle class, very easy, privileged um, position But I also, I guess, had a connection through my family history and everything to various forms of, I guess, oppression and trauma and uh, and things like that. And I always had a very strong sense of justice and injustice. And that drove me to, I guess, want to work to fight injustice and uh, make the world a, a better place. And that took me on a journey to study political economy at, at university. I went to Sydney University and was very much interested in, you know, revolution and changing massive systems. I wasn't interested in tinkering and, and reformation. And, yeah, incredibly wasn't exposed to, I guess, the history of the country that I grew up in. Um, was much more familiar with global history and global injustices, but really was not cognizant of what was happening uh, in my own country. Instead of uh, going and joining the revolution after university, luckily my mother said, you know, why don't you have a look at what's going on in your own backyard and have a look at the the inequalities that have been here. She was just trying to keep me in the country, trying to stop me from moving away from the family and friends. But, you know, it really made me think about, wow, what is the history of this country and what's the injustice here? And I went to a library the the next day and took out some books on First Nations history and culture. And, you know, there were books by uh, Larissa Berent and Tim Rouse, and they opened up uh, a world to me that I haven't really looked back from. Learning about First Nations cultures and histories uh, has been incredibly uh, enriching and learning about the injustice that has been perpetrated here has been something that I've never wanted to uh, not be working on trying to redress. And so, yeah, ever ever since then, I've kind of been working for Indigenous-led social enterprises and in, involved in uh, movements for, for justice and self-determination with First Nations people. Man, there's so much in there. <laughs> You'd be like, and we're just going to spend the rest of this Let's just say hour. We'll see. You're exploring the many themes that you've just touched on. Like, why is it that there's so much blindness to serious multi generational repression? Mm. And I mean, yes, injustice. But I mean, to, to, you know, to, to me, you know, as a colonizer <laughs> historian of the colonializing influence of uh, the country that you know I herald from the UK like injustice just isn't isn't the appropriate term like mm. this is like borderline criminal genocide you yeah. know sort of activity yeah, uh, you know that, that's been institutionally perpetrated right for a very 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 long time and intentionally excluded from 
curriculums and so forth, yeah. which is why you hadn't had any exposure to it yeah, right, exactly. until that sort of near adulthood almost. Yeah. So a couple of things I'd just like to sort of sprinkle in at this point in time. For those of you who are, who are long-time listeners of, um, of Better World Leaders, uh, it was Ben Bowen who introduced me to Mickey. Somewhat, I hope not reluctantly, Ben, if you're listening to this. <laughs> um, but you know, what I have found in, in, in many dialogues over many years with Ben is, yeah, again, as I have found with you know certain custodian-like approaches, there is a sort of a waiting period, I think, to, to sort of almost make sure that I'm just going to be generous to myself and say the time is appropriate <laughs> to make an introduction rather than the intentionality is appropriate or the capability is, is, is sufficient or that, you know, you're not going to do anything, you know, more dangerous such as, you know, do something inappropriate and, you know, cause offence and, and, and a source of embarrassment to the introducer. But Ben eventually introduced me to Mickey, even though Mickey lives mere kilometres away from where I live and had been living there for some time. Um, so thank you, Ben, uh, for doing so. Um, and then we've, you know, we've had, you know, a lot of, kind of convergence very quickly. I mean, as we stand here right Definitely. now, anyone that's seen um, many of uh, you know, my YouTube videos, you often see me standing in a room with a big uh, book array behind me and Mickey and I have had a lot of conversations about, you know, knowledge enshrined uh, in paper uh, and things that he's read that I am yet to read, things that I've read that um, he's, uh, you know, sort of welcomed the introduction of and things that we've both read and, the first time Mickey came in here, he pointed to three books that were sitting on my shelf and basically went, right, <laughs> you see this, this, and this? That's essentially what the business that you're now working in yeah, that's right. you know, was sort of informed by. So just to, just to sort of nudge us a little bit towards the current, yeah. you know, sort of contemporary context, what are you, what are you working on right now? That's just so we'll, we'll touch on it and we'll have a circular path through this conversation, I think. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm working on a very exciting systemic enterprise called Native Foodways, um, which it's an absolute joy to work on every day. I work with four First Nations co-founders, um, two Wiradjuri men and a Pitta Pitta woman and Torres Strait Islander woman. And we set out about two years ago to think about how we could strengthen the native food system in a way that's regenerative, culturally respectful, and that benefits First Peoples. And yeah, we've been on quite a journey over the last uh, yeah, couple of years to figure out what's the best contribution we can make to the system so that we can address some of the major systemic issues, including the fact that less than 1% of First Nations people benefit, benefit economically from the native food system. There is a huge uh, undersupply of native foods and massive inconsistencies in the native food market as well and yeah people uh, I think just don't realize how much of a, an important role food and food sovereignty play in many other systems that we rely on yeah absolutely so let's just let's just kind of hover a little bit here over yep. native foods because this is something that I've been fascinated bordering on fixating <laughs> with for a few years and you know, as a as a reminder, again, if you're a long term listener, you know we had a fascinating conversation with Chris Andrew, who's down at Black Duck Foods, yeah. and we didn't we we did touch on sort of Aboriginal agricultural systems, but we didn't really sort of dive down into food systems specifically and you know what is native. And mm. I think what I might sort of request we do just now 
for the benefit of you know anyone in the audience who isn't aware of just the abundance and the range mm. of you know nutritional metabolic you know immune supporting yeah. uh food stuff that yeah. exists here can you just roll off a bit of a list of when we talk about australian native foods this is what this is what's in there yeah sure i mean there's over 6000 native foods uh in australia uh, across the country really only 150 are kind of classified or talked about or, or labelled. Um, and of that, uh, maybe only uh, 16, 17 have been kind of classified for commercial growth and use by, I think, the Food Administration or whichever um, food bodies uh, looks after that kind of regulation. Um, and only one has actually had large-scale commercial success and so much so that it's not even considered a native food anymore and it's not counted in studies uh, that try to look at how big the native food market is, But and that's macadamia. But, yeah, some of those kind of top 15 uh, after macadamia are lemon myrtle, finger lime, lily pilly, wattle, lemon aspen. There's a range of others. There's also meats, seafoods, insects, also often for some reason or another, not classified uh, in native foods more technically or by research bodies, but most certainly are. The kangaroo industry is a $200 million industry, kangaroo meat, which is um, much larger than the rest of the native food system, not including macadamias put together. So there's also a huge amount of yeah, medicinal plants um, that are really important to, to different communities around the country. So I guess we would define native foods as anything that, is, um, you know, can be used for food and that was used uh, for food by First Nations people and is endemic to Australian environments. I mean, just those statistics there, I mean, again, having been, you know, sort of excited and enticed by this abundance, like that, just hearing you, you know, sort of say that there, like, you know, that's right, so we're talking about an absolutely minute proportion of these foods would even be recognisable if you put them in front of most Australians, let alone people in the broader world. Totally. Right? If you're talking about, you know, like 15 out of 6,000 would even be kind of recognised as a as a food source. Totally. And and then it's it, you know let, let's talk about efficacy as well, right? I mean, no, it's not my <laughs> my mate. There's too much of a kind of a statistical analysis, but you know, rumi has got huge amounts of like nutritional benefit compared to other sort of mainstream meat sources. There's lots of berries that have got a lot more sort of phytonutrient impact than sort of mainstream crops that are com constantly referred to as being the best, like blueberries and and and, and oh, gojis and stuff, right? Like yeah. you come and look at midgen berries and yeah. things like that. You know, I'll just give you an yeah, another one to blow your mind. Uh, <laughs> There are some native grasses that have more protein per gram than chicken breast. <laughs> Did you get that, vegans? <laughs> There's a huge amount of plant protein in, in native grasses as well as other plants like saltbush. But, yeah, as you say, you know, highest citral content of any plant in the world, lemon myrtle, extremely high, maybe the highest in the world, uh, vitamin C content in kakadu plum. A lot of the antioxidants in in these um native foods are are extremely high and not only that it's 
it's it's not just yeah the output that's incredible but it's these foods grow in what's sometimes called marginal areas they're pulling more nutrients out of the earth than any exotic plant could ever do even if those exotic plants were in fertile rich mineral rich nutrient rich soils so it's just unbelievable yeah <laughs> so a little bit more please about what change are you sort of seeking to create through the work that you're doing so what we really want to do is ensure that the vast majority of the native food system is benefiting first nations people so that means if we try to include everything in the native food market as it is we're talking about about a billion dollar or so industry right now set to at least double in the next five years and grow yeah, pretty exponentially. So our goal is to ensure that we go from 1% of that billion or so dollars going to First Nations people to well over 50% um, in a relatively short space of time. And so that's that's one of the biggest things. But, um, you know, our... Kind well, of- hang on, I'm just going to hold you there yeah, for a sure. second because, you know, Sometimes it's easy to talk about money because it's something that most people can relate to, right? So we're saying that if I've, again, my um, cognitive capacity today is a bit elapsed because I had a very long uh, series of days, but we're talking about a billion-dollar swing towards First Nations peoples, right? If it's a billion-dollar industry that's going to double and you want 50% of it to be going towards First Nations peoples, then that's that's an upside gain of a billion dollars over five years. Uh, hopefully, yeah. yeah five I years. love it. I love We're it. definitely, we'd love to do that in five years. And I guess to give you a sense of how you even think about going and, and doing that, because that's obviously an extreme systemic change in a very short period of time where there's a lot of money out there, as people would know, in capital markets. Uh, a lot of it is now increasingly urgently looking for nature positive solutions nature positive investments uh there's a lot of institutional super funds and things like that that are keen to yeah you know they have fiduciary duties to be investing properly for the 15 year old who has just started their job now and is going to be looking to access their super in 2070 they not only have to provide a financial return but a, a thriving world to that young person. And I think the fund managers that are starting to realise that are really looking for these nature-positive investments. But the kind of industry bodies like the Responsible Investment Association, Australasia and, and others are really um, encouraging those institutional investors to think about one's investments that center first nations ways of knowing doing and being because it's also being recognized that first nations um knowledge is um the most regenerative type of knowledge and that uh, first nations ecological knowledge alongside agroecological principles is absolutely the the best way to not only produce food but um improve our ecologies so yeah we're trying to exploring uh developing quite significant sized bonds um, that will capture some of this institutional investment so that we can create first nations led regenerative native food farms that start to produce a significant amount of native food produce uh, that we can then bring to market and capture that market and to give you an idea of the broader 
food and beverage market. That's over a $100 billion industry for Australia. So food and beverage is a bit over 5% of the whole economy. Um, and there's no reason why native foods shouldn't play a much bigger role in that whole um, economy. Um, and so we're hoping that, yeah, we will actually grow by more than double in the next five to 10 years and we'll take a bigger proportion of that um, broader food and veg market. Yeah, no, I love this. I mean, you know, this, so this is this is a great sort of systemic transformation work, right? So when we talk about any one thing, we're actually talking about dozens of inter linked nested holes right so i would i would i would suggest that you talk about anything you talk about everything yeah yeah 100 connectedness so you we've got basically recalibrating a very outdated very extractionist model of traditional conventional agricultural finance systems that mm. pay the lowest return at what's the commodity level which is the farmer who actually sort of nourishes the land, hopefully, uh, and produces the crop. And then those that add value add margin. So it goes, it, get, it kind of gets further away from the, the land element. Yeah. So you're looking, yeah. at re, you're looking at redressing that in the first instance. Awesome. Second, let's bring the C word in here because we talk about it all the time. So this is a climate-orientated initiative as well because yeah. we're reforesting, we're regreening, we're rewilding. And we're regenerating, right? Like all at the same time, sure. yep. all of which is a nature-based solution to counterweight the big issue that we have in Australia. So anybody who was following any of the COP26 announcements around, not even going to say progress that was made, <laughs> try not to be too cynical, but any of the possibly productive and good things that came out of COP was, you know, was this um, pledge around reversing deforestation and Australia has got the worst record of any developed country on deforestation, right? Yeah. I mean, it's been absolutely massive yeah. in the last 50 years, particularly. Yeah. I was looking at a really interesting data set a couple of weeks ago around basically like the tree canopy density in Australia and how rapidly that's been eroded in the last 200 years. And we, 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 we're talking about an enormous landscape mm. that had a huge you know, sort of canopy yeah. and, you know, just really, really traumatic reduction. Um, and as anybody would know that has been anywhere near a tree and especially kind of lent with your shoulders back against a tree trunk and then felt something crawling <laughs> up there, you know, a tree is an ecosystem. Mm, yeah. So when you remove a tree, you're actually removing a really enormous life shed at the same time. And then you compound that over the millions and millions and millions of trees that have been removed, and it's just it's an immense trauma on the on the country and on the land. It's unfathomable. Yeah. So you you you're trying to sort of you know counterweight that in a positive sense. Yeah. Then we've got the social justice connotation as well. Yeah. And that's that's where you know kind of the whole thing really starts to you know sort of become this enormous systemic multiplier because yeah. it's just leveraging benefits all the way through. So I love it, love it, love it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about your systems work, right? Because this is then now we're now I'm going to kind of step out of the contemporary and sort of come to join sort of where you you'd sort of stepped off your own journey, you know, sort of story for a moment there. Sure. So you've done a lot of work in systemic change in different guises and uh, different ways, but just just talk a little bit about how you've come into doing this kind of systemic work. Yeah, I guess it's it's more a 
it was more being led into uh, working with First Nations people that I guess took me into systemic work because anything that's led by First Nations people is um, almost always uh, holistic and systemic work. And so, yeah, I, I guess a lot of my work um, started at the National um, Centre of Indigenous Excellence uh, in Redfern that was trying to yeah reframe narratives around what it meant to be uh, Indigenous and what Indigenous excellence meant and try to work with young people to kind of liberate possibilities. Um, and, yeah, some of the bigger projects that we had there were the Indigenous Digital Excellence Initiative, which was trying to weave together, I guess, ancestral knowledge with uh, new technologies, um, which was, yeah, incredibly exciting work uh, at the time. And... You know, since then I've worked uh, for other organisations in, in creating cultural uh, learning opportunities and landscapes online and offline. There was a very big campaign to try and change the constitution, a systemically problematic document, founding document of this nation, which I was also a part of and which was an incredibly nuanced argument and very difficult um, kind of space to be in for a long time trying to change the constitution and change our, our national narrative. But, yeah, and, and then following that, I've, I worked with the Atlantic Fellows for, for Social Equity, which is an Indigenous-led social change program run out of Melbourne University. And it was one of six or seven hubs uh, around the world which were Atlantic Fellows programs for some kind of equity. And it was Chuck Feeney's last big bet where he put down a billion dollars on the idea of a fellow global fellowship program um, that would have deep systemic global change. And we were the only Indigenous-led uh, program in the network, and you could certainly see um, just how valuable it was to have that First Nations knowledge within the network and how a lot of the other programs really looked to that knowledge and leadership that was coming or couched in knowledge that was, you know, coming from time immemorial, timeless, essentially. And so there we worked with a whole range of incredible fellows, all themselves working in systemic change. And our whole premise was weaving them together into collaborations that would have even greater impact. Um, and there was the ideas where we, you know, yeah, explored different um, frames of fellowship and leadership and ideas of connectedness and collaboration that would lead to, yeah, I guess the, the mental frameworks and the dispositions that would allow for collaborative systemic change. Yeah, awesome. I mean, wow, I mean, what, what, a, what a journey mm. and, you know, you've used the word already, but what a privilege to be, mm. you know, involved in that kind of initiative and that specific space within that initiative, right? Yeah. But since since you've just, I'm just going to double double click on on the approaches to leading. Mm. Let's put it that way. Let's <laughs> let's, sure. let's just frame it that way. So um, I really want to dive in, and yeah, this is the Better World Leaders podcast. So yeah, we're going to talk about leading at some point. Mm. Is inevitable, but I just want to share with anyone listening to this. You know, one of the first sort of bits of discourse that Mickey and I had when we first sat in. In a, in a cafe in, in Kangaroo Valley, um, was around this contention that, that that we both have, but come at somewhat differently, but with a strong convergence around this whole notion of leadership. And and you know, I was just sort of reflecting on this again with Mickey when he when he rocked up here today. That 
and I, I believe I've said it in another conversation on this platform, but if so, I hope it bears repeating that if it wasn't for the mindset that you know I need to generate income and that there's a possibility that in order to generate that income, somebody might put you know leadership training or leadership coaching or you know my name with the common usage term which functionally describes the way most people think about the kind of work that I and my team do if it wasn't for all of that I would never use the word leadership again it would not be in the name of our business it would not be on our website it wouldn't be in any of our material because I think it's antithetical to the way we are the work we do and what's needed and the reason that I, 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 I contest the term so strongly is that for me, it's emblematic of rigid hierarchies and authoritarian, again, kind of a typical sort of colonizing approach that people are in positions of leadership, right? Like that's the typical framing. Mm. And that to me is just unhelpful, right? The, the way that I think about it is it's about leading, yeah, which is a verb, mm. and leaders you know, are people who adopt a form of leading for a specific period of time. You know, that might be a couple of hours a week or it might be a couple of moments in a specific situation or it might be a context that they might operate within for years and years, but it isn't a position. It's not something which can be given, therefore it can't be taken away. It's something that you step into um, and therefore it is distributed and it's highly contextual. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think I totally agree in in lots of ways. I think that's why at the Atlantic Fellows for Social Equity, I guess we were exploring the idea of of fellowship and and what that means and how much more useful that is in terms of bringing it into the space of working together with others and you know leadership. If you think about leadership, it automatically makes you think, I guess, about followers. Whereas if you think of um, fellowship, you think about fellows. And ultimately, I think some of the useful connotations coming from leadership are ideas around initiative and direction, which you kind of alluded to. Um, but ultimately, leadership, fellowship, community ship, as we have talked about in terms of some management writers like Henry Mintzberg talking about, these are relationships, uh, I guess, between people and amongst groups. And I guess that they're all about trying to get people to collaborate for a common purpose. But because they're about relationships, it's about, yeah, what, what makes relationships really work. And for that, you know, I think that Native Foodways, our, our principles around that are respect, reciprocity, responsibility, you know, and that we lead with respect in, in all of our relationships. Uh, we think that um, thriving relationships are based on reciprocity, mutual aid, supporting each other. And we think that uh, responsibility, we should take as much responsibility as we can as individuals and as a collective that is in line with our well-being. Um, and that's... Um, that's, I guess, yeah, some of the ideas wrapped up in, in this exploration of the difference between leadership and fellowship. But ultimately, yeah, the idea that we're all fellows, not that there isn't hierarchies, there's always hierarchies um, within social relations based on knowledge and context and resources, kind of, you know, 
ideas of power and rank are always there and not to be disguised or nullified because that can lead to other insidious you know relations or dynamics but ultimately always working towards the positive aspects rather than the negative aspects of hierarchy and distributing um, power and creative potential yeah and there absolutely are as you say you know there are these sort of specific sort of linkage points within a network of, of of what a community is and that those linkage points can be people who have certain amounts of knowledge mm. or certain types of knowledge yeah. and in specific contexts assume the form of a leader yeah. because that's theirs to do right and whether that's the other the elder you know sort of archetype someone who's been around for a while and they've seen a lot and they've kind of assumed knowledge over time or it's someone who's been specifically nurtured to be you know, the holder of a particular ritual or a particular spiritual essence or a certain sort of responsibility for land or beings, plant, animal, or what have you, right? And again, we see this over and over and over in First Nations cultures everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And it's about community-endorsed leadership always without any sense of coercion. I think that's also um, a big differing point you know a lot of the times in when we talk about leadership or we see leadership there is some form of coercion which you know sometimes is even can be classified as violence um, because of the nature of relationships if if i'm stuck in a relationship with somebody in a workplace because i need financial resources because my access to land has been taken away from me which you know through colonial processes and colonial thinking then that's that's not a relationship based on free will. And so, yeah. I mean, I see this even in organisational contexts, right? You know, you can be working, you know, in a program with, you know, highly capable, you know, very smart, very aware, you know, very conscious people who are all there, you know, for a particular purpose. And yet when it comes to decision-making, mm. often the learnt behaviour is that we defer to authority. That, and that authority is typically granted. I right? will oh, it's the CEO's decision. Yeah. Oh, well, they're the project director. Yeah. Or what have yeah, you. Exactly. Which is is just a slightly more subtle form of coercion in Absolutely. a way. Like you're disempowering 100%. people from their potential. Yeah. You know, not in a. I'm not, I'm not trying to in any way diminish you know the violence and separation from land that absolutely is coercive. Mm. But what I, what I was just holding then as well was is there a specific example? You know, from one of the programs that, that you've done or, or, you know, sort of an interaction uh, in any of the organisations you've worked in where you can sort of say, well, here's a story, and in this story we can see examples of these, you know, sort of contextual leaders and this distributed community-endorsed pattern that, that that's occurring. I guess, yeah, I feel it alive and well in Native Foodways, how we work together, but also in other organisations I've worked with where often the person who is seen as or is the leader externally is doing that for a role you know they're almost like a a lightning bolt leaders often take a lot of the negative influences of external forces on organizations and battle that back so that people internally can focus on on work so it's um, I mean, at Native Foodways, we we actually have a system where everybody is a director or everybody is 
there's no kind of hierarchical system. It's all very contextual and fluid. Obviously, that's easy for us now. We're still very small. But my apologies if there's some background noise and we'll see if we have to stop. Like the, there's a storm rolled in. It's absolutely just pelting down with rain at the moment. We Maybe we'll just pause for yeah, a second. Sure. So we are actually just resuming now because we had a rainstorm come over and make quite a bit of clamoring on the roof. Uh, so we're, we're just kind of picking back up the thread from where we were. So if someone is in the sort of leading form that we described a little bit before and, you know, they're listening to this and they're thinking, okay, so I do want to make a shift within the system that I'm operating in, which might be, and part of the work that we're starting to do more and more of now is I want the organization that I'm in to have more of a, of an action-based approach to engaging with climate change. Or, you know, I really am interested in, you know, the, the, the native food systems wherever in the world I might be, uh, and that's something I want to engage more in the kitchen at home or what have you. Anyone who's listening to this that wants to take the lead on something, how would you suggest they could start to get involved with these kind of topics and forms and frameworks that we've been describing? Yeah, I guess as we talked about before, kind of everything's interconnected, and I think that uh, wherever you are in the world, showing up and showing respect to the peoples that were there first and connecting to them and their knowledge systems and their connection to the to the country that you're on or living in is is super important and the place the place to start so i think yeah centering first nations ways of knowing doing and being in all contexts is really important and i guess that that means in some ways uh looking to connecting to country or nature or land and starting to understand how and why that was such an important part of First Nations ways of knowing, doing and being and how much there is to learn from nature and land as the as an incredible source of knowledge and knowledge holder and how that flows into, um, you know, a blueprint for relationships and expressions of culture and community. And so I just think that reaching out to First Nations communities in your local space is really important. Reaching out to First Nations communities in the industry that you're in or that is tangentially connected to your industry is really important. And you can do that by, you know, I think a lot of people struggle with that first step. They don't know where, who, who should I connect with or, and they're kind of worried about where to go. But I think just looking at, yeah, those First Nations-led organisations that are around locally and making an offer first before you ask something of them is a way to build a meaningful relationship. If we go back to that respect and reciprocity, how can you really show that you're being respectful? How can you initiate the relationship with a give or an offer and be patient about letting that relationship develop over time? So to ask a specific question, yeah. what and again, appreciating that the context is always going to, the specificity of the context is always going to influence the specificity of what's appropriate. But what sort of generally as much as is possible is an appropriate, you know, offer or give. I guess, yeah, in, even in our context of thinking about collaborations in the local area, in the, in the Shoalhaven uh, region, thinking, you know, how can we uh, introduce ourselves to local community and, uh, show that we respect their local connection to country and culture uh, is to pay for a cultural immersion program 
and through that learn about local histories and knowledge. And so I think that is that is one way. Another way is to think about it in terms of reparations. Um, you know, this country is founded on dispossession. A lot of non-Indigenous people, all non-Indigenous people have benefited greatly, not only from that original act of dispossession, but the colonial systems built on top of that that have flowed um, or moved resources to people of privilege. And there is a huge amount of uh, reparations that needs to be paid in many ways, shapes and forms uh, back to First Nations people to try to even start to redress the injustices. And reparations, it certainly can mean money and it should mean money, but it can also mean a whole lot of other things that go towards um, Indigenous self-determination. And I certainly think that people with non-Indigenous backgrounds should focus on dismantling the systems of um, whiteness and privilege rather than necessarily thinking about uh, supporting First Nations people as well because it's actually our job as privileged white people, and in my case men, uh, is to actually work on white people as the problem and dismantle the problematic systems um, that we have created which will then allow First Nations people's knowledge to be centred and uh, allow them to be able to determine their own futures. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, something that's really resonated out of what you've said is what I would term as a practitioner, you know, a strengths-based approach. You know, you viewed it as a, you know, taking it a positive way, both of which are contrary to a deficit model. And and I think this is, again, language is important. We're not going to have time today to get into the whole construct of language, but, you know, what you've just described, you know, a label for that is decolonizing. Mm-hmm which I, you know, I can kind of sense people really struggling with as, you know, they're, I'm talking about privileged white people struggling with this, right? Because yeah. that, that, that little D up front, right, like that immediately means that something's being taken away. Mm. And you can see how that, you know, kind of neurologically has an impact, right? Like even people that are really doing their best, right, like the barriers are coming up. In comparison, you know, another frame of indigenizing or something, you know, is more invitational, right? You're actually you're adding, you're, you're bringing something in. Mm. So I think that's a kind of an interesting way um, that I've been kind of wrestling with. Like how do how do I kind of think about this and come at it? Yeah, and there's I think you're you're spot on, and it, it you know it can be confronting, and I guess it should be confronting. And you know, there's a term and a book called White Fragility that is really useful to help people understand what it means to live in a society based on white supremacy like i think a lot of people just think that that's some crazy notion for crazy fight fight right wingers or or something like that but we we actually live every day in white supremacy and uh some of the ways that um robin d'angelo who wrote that book breaks down uh, how that works is you know just in sheer statistics and numbers of white people in positions of power throughout all aspects of society, but particularly in positions of resource power like politics and, of course, large corporations where the vast, vast majority is from white backgrounds. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to have a conversation. I'm trying to get a couple of neuroscientists that I've come into contact with recently on for season five on nurturing conditions to to look at 
sorry, this is tangential, but mm-hmm. I'll bring it back yeah. to look at, you know, sort of basically part of the, I think part of the challenge we've got with, with sort of transformative systemic work is that there's a lot of, you know, neurological patterning about interconnectedness and sort of engaging with concepts as holes mm. that happen in particular centers of the brain and in the body. Mm. And, you know, now increasingly the, the research is showing that our neurons are also responding to external uh, fields, that they're things that are happening, like between you and I standing in this space now together, yeah. like that your neurology is actually in, yeah, sort of interacting with mine with yeah, no, right. you know, joysticks, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. like no, no mantras involved, right? Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that when, when they're, they're, you know, you're, you're talking about where these centers are and then you think about the kind of education and the kind of training and the kind of work that people do, that would be experienced using that part of their neurology, they're not the kind of people that we see in positions of power and leadership. And I'm now intentionally using the term that I don't like, right? Because these are not the sort of neurological centers that one would typically associate somebody being really highly attuned with if they are an economic theorist, right or or any of the sort of really rigid structure-based sort of ways of of thinking about the world right yeah um so even in democratic system we're still governed largely by economists yeah right and they're only thinking not necessarily feeling as their primary lens and when they're only thinking they're then only thinking about one sort of specific channel through the big system that everything actually operates from, which of course leads us to where we are right now. (laughs) Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, it's almost definitional, you know, that all the leaders who are in positions of power in our society at the moment have a framework of leadership and use that and uh, start with that in terms of their mindset and all of the people that I guess have a framework of fellowship categorically don't necessarily want to enter those spaces and Mm. participate in those ways of knowing doing and being and so it's very hard i guess to challenge those in some ways yeah i mean it ties ties really neatly into a provocation that came in conversation with betsy reed just the uh, previous episode uh so she's long in sustainability and you know sort of systemic change work from a sustainability lens and one of the questions that she asked is do we need to really look at who leads Mm. Yeah, and that, that ultimately that's a big part of it, right? Yeah. So I have a question because this is something that you've really helped me with, and yeah, Ben also, Bala Ben, thank you. He's been so patient with you know my good intentions, <laughs> total ignorance of certain things. But I think I think this is a really important you know sort of line to sort of walk people up to who again have good intentions, you know, really understand. Yeah, or at least a desire to understand more as I do all of these approaches and frames and mindsets and ways of thinking or being sets, you could almost say, you know, that are held, you know, and the wisdom emanates out of First Nations culture. And and the two things that you've really helped me with is cultural sensitivity and awareness of appropriation. Mm. Can we just sort of, to an extent, try and kind of encapsulate what those two things are and really a little bit of guidance from you, um, you know, as you have been um, to me and others that we've you know, worked in a group with around just what you should be aware of and kind of hold in your consciousness as you are, you know, to come back to your previous point, you know, sort of 
coming up to engage with local First Nations people or looking at some of the resources we're going to share shortly and then how you go and use them in your own work and life? What should people be kind of conscious of? Yeah, sure. I I think coming back to that idea of respect, certainly coming in to relationships and new cultural settings with a sense of respect and curiosity for people's cultures and not making assumptions and that may sound easy but it's really hard right like really we, hard. we we are always coming in with whether they're conscious or unconscious but a whole huge set of assumptions that have been passed on to us through our, our cultures and through our schooling and through our I guess groups that we move in so if we're not experienced um uh working with living with um collaborating with First Nations people and being in those spaces, then, yeah, we're coming with a whole set of assumptions. So I would just say really try to check those assumptions, leave them at the door, really come with a sense of respect and curiosity, and I guess you'll just be so uh, blessed to be able to uh, uh, learn from uh, other cultures. And I would also say think about your culture and what you can share. Think about that idea of reciprocity and before engaging with other cultures, uh, look inside at yourself and the cultures that you are connected to and the knowledge that you're connected to ancestrally um, because it's really powerful to learn other people's cultures, but it's even more powerful when you can have an exchange of cultures and share um, deep knowledge and wisdom that we're all kind of connected to in some way, shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to start to sort of shuffle towards the... uh well, I'm going to I'm going to be a bit presumptuous, and I'm going to say intermission in this conversation. <laughs> we might fi- we might find a, a way and a, and, a, and a place to to reconvene this. I mean, I mean, right here and now, and this is this is me being bold, bordering on the inappropriate, perhaps. But <laughs> I'm just going to say it anyway. You know, Ben has graced this platform with two appearances so far. Maybe we can go for a lucky third and bring Ben in to a conversation yeah. with the three of us cool. right? And, and we can unpack some more of this stuff. That would be awesome. In a bit more. Um, so you're in, Ben, nominated. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Mick and I were just thinking, because, uh, you know, we are standing in a space that is full of books uh, and books that both of us, you know, sort of really um, enjoy and have learned an enormous amount from. So what we're going to do right now is we're just going to rattle off just a bit of a list of books that we think would be helpful. Or, in fact, I'm going to ask Mickey to do it. And then... In actual fact, and this has been somewhat spontaneous, I've sprung this one on Mickey just while we had the little intermission in the rain. What he and I are going to do kind of immediately after this recording, so by the time you hear this, this will have been out in the world for probably a couple of three weeks, is we're actually going to do a little live stream into YouTube where I'm going to invite Mickey to just expand on why these books are helpful and and how you can sort of apply them. Uh, but we're going to do that there and then link that video in the show notes. So right now it's just a list of stuff to go uh, inquire about, try and get you know, your hands and, 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 and your brain on. And then uh, we'll link all of these uh, books and, and obviously the authors in the show notes as well. Uh, and then I'm going to ask Mickey to uh, give you, the listener, a list of places that you can get in touch with him, you know, connect with what he's doing, uh, engage with Native Foodways, and there's a specific program that you'd like to steer people towards as well. So over to you, list of resources for people to consider. Yeah, so I guess just some uh, books and resources that have been super helpful for me, uh, thinking about and learning about First Nations ways of knowing, doing and being. Obviously, before I talk to these, I should just say that 
it's the incredible privilege of being able to work with Indigenous people and communities over the last 10, 15 years from where I've gained uh, so much knowledge, insight, um, just, yeah, incredible stuff and that I'm still very much on the journey and have so much more to learn and I'm still, yeah. So one of the books is uh, Treading Lightly, which is written by Tex Scalthorpe, and it's just a fantastic yeah, exploration of uh, First Nations ways of knowing, doing and being, particularly in the context of how we organise ourselves as enterprises. So it's really interesting. Uh, Fire Country by Victor Stephenson, incredible book on land management and the importance of cultural learning. Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, obviously uh, shining a light on some of those agroecological approaches to land management that have been going on in this country since time immemorial. Wandu Mai, I think I'm pronouncing that right, by uh, Damien Coulthard from Wandu. Uh, which is an awesome book on how you can use native ingredients in everyday cooking. Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, Indigenous Wisdom, uh, Scientific Knowledge and the Teaching of Plants. This is citizen Potawatomi woman Robin Wall Kimura, who's just, yeah, mind-blowing in um, terms of her uh, knowledge and the way she conveys it. And then finally, Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Massey is a really incredible new book about regenerative um, agriculture and he very much centers the the knowledge of first nations people and the importance of working in collaboration with traditional owners and so um it's a really important book too awesome thanks man and yeah yeah the, fir- the, f- the first time nikki walked in here he kind of got drawn <laughs> to this pile um of knowledge and and he literally pointed at these three books and was like you see i'm glad you've got these and hopefully you've read them because you see this this and this that's pretty much what our enterprise is built on (laughs) so so there we are so we invite you to yeah respectfully and acknowledging uh the source of this knowledge both explicit from author and um you know the cultural and uh, intergenerational custodianship of this knowledge uh, contained even within the books that are written by non-indigenous authors and mickey your good self like how would you invite people to engage with you and and the others um that you're working with and where can people find out more about what you're doing um so yeah going to the native food website is probably a good spot to learn a bit more about us uh the team that's involved uh the projects that we're doing um we're going to be continually updating that now as we uh, move into a new stage of growth uh, with the company. We're, we're lucky enough to be in an accelerator program at the moment, which is yeah really exciting for us. So yeah, our, our website and Instagram to follow along on the journey. Cool. So just scroll down on whatever device you're on and you'll find all those links in the show notes. And I'm going to just be a little bit provocative as an accountability framework that by the time you get to that website, there is also going to be a knowledge page on there <laughs> um, Mickey's trying not to uh, to laugh uh, with some more stuff there and finally there's a really important campaign that uh, a fundraising campaign that you wanted to orientate people towards as well yeah one of our biggest partners at Native Foodways uh, an amazing indigenous-led um, health organization called Waminda 
based here on the South Coast, and they have a very exciting new social enterprise called Black Seed, which is all about native foods and mainly about locally sourced native foods. And they are just trying to get off the ground, so looking to raise $50,000. If you can go and chip in, it'll be a really meaningful way to start contributing to this space. Yeah, absolutely. So again, show notes, scroll down, look for the chuffed.org project link there and it's black seed black without a c and the c for seed so it's b-l-a-k-c-e-d-e uh but you'll find that in the show notes so it's all there um mickey it's been an absolute pleasure thanks heaps for coming down today man and you know rolling with the the rambler that i am sometimes but you've you've done really well good on you thanks heaps no i really enjoyed it good stuff thanks man see you again with ben What a fantastic conversation. What an honour and a privilege it is to be able to hold a space and be in place with someone like Mickey. And I continue to be in awe of everything that he's done in his life, in his career, and really most especially in the work that he's doing right now with Native Foodways. So a couple of suggestions, requests, invitations, uh, and then one sort of specific prompt to leave you with today. So the suggestions, invitations, requests really are all about just clicking now on whatever is of most interest to you in the many things that Mickey and I have just touched on. Absolutely go and check out Native Foodways, especially, I would say, if you're in Australia and particularly if you're looking for someone you know, to partner with um, you know, as a corporate or as a landowner or as really anyone you know, who is in a position to facilitate the, I don't know, the reseeding of this great land uh, with more abundant varieties of our native beings, our native plant beings, and in particular, the native plant beings that provide for those of us who are currently here uh, as human beings in this place. I would also really, really encourage you to go and investigate and check out the work of Waminda and investigate how you can contribute specifically through this initiative Black Seed that that they're running at the moment that that Mickey orientated us towards. And again, as always, links in the show notes. Scroll down, click now. And then also in the show notes, as we mentioned, there's a link there to this little YouTube video that we made directly afterwards. It's a bit rough and ready. It was live um, just at home here. Uh, but you can see Mickey there going through this list, this you know, great uh, set of resources for finding out and exploring and engaging with indigenous ways of knowing, doing and being. And all of those books are listed in the show notes, just with you know, title and author or authors. Um, but uh, you know, it won't take much more than a, a copy and paste and a Google search to, to get your, heart, your hands on those, get your... Get your heart, souls, and brains on them, if you would, if you will. So the final prompt. Um, this was the kind of the integral part of both the conversation here with Mickey and also, um, you know, Ben Bowen. A couple of conversations we've had had now with Bala Ben and with Chris Andrew, uh, you know, who works very closely with um, with Bruce and um, and the, his work uh, down with uh, with. Um, commercializing you know sort of um, indigenous food practices with black duck food this notion of contextual 
highly adaptive leadership that is non-hierarchical, that is distributed. Now, in Mickey's words, leaders are people who adapt a form of leading for a specific period of time. And I just really want to leave you sitting with that for as long as you'd be prepared to do so. How does that form of leadership land for you? How does it nest with you? What does it mean? And where has it shown up in your life? And how might you adopt this way of leading in your journey moving forward? I'll leave you there with that. I'll thank you as always for your time and attention. Be well, lead well. Much, much more coming very soon. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice and to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. world.